I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so looking forward to this next interview with my friend Jim Bitter. I am going to read his bio in just a second, but you'll see from our conversation that he is just so lighthearted and funny, and he uses that tool of humor in his presentations and clinically with his families to just help us, you know, have a laugh, lighten up. It's hard work, but we can still roll through it uh, with some humor. And he just, he brings that to the game every time. He's taught me so, so much. Uh, so I cherish him professionally and, and also as a friend. So let me, uh, let me introduce him to you. Uh, James Robert Bitter is his actual proper name. Jimmy B, as I call him. Uh, he is a professor of counseling and human services at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. He is also a diplomate in Adlerian psychology from uh, NASAP. He was honored with that in 2002. He was the former editor of the Journal of Individual Psychology, which is um, our Adlerian uh, journal. He has served as the president of the North American Society of Adlerian Psychology. We call that NASAP. Jim is the author or co-author of four books, including Adlerian Group Counseling and Therapy, Step by Step, which came out in 2004, Contributions to Adlerian Psychology, 2011, and The Theory and Practice of Family Therapy and Counseling, second edition was 2014, as well as more than 100 journal articles, chapters, and videotapes. So he is prolific in his writing contributions. 
He is the featured master therapist on the video for Adlerian Family Therapy on the Psychotherapy.net series, Family Therapy with the Experts. The American Counseling Association published Jim's book, The Theory and Practice of Couples and Family Counseling, 3rd Edition, in 2021. Jim was privileged to study, write, and work with Virginia Satir for more than 10 years. And he also studied with the master gestalt therapists, Irv and Miriam Polster, and the founder of narrative therapy, Michael White. Starting with his early work at Idaho State University with Dr. Tom Edgar, and later with his mentor, Dr. Manfred Stonstegar, Stonsty, as you'll hear some of the Adlerians call him, Jim has participated in establishing and supporting five family education training centers in the United States and contributing to the development of another five throughout the world. So not a man who uh, sits around, always making contributions. Um, so let me, uh, let me get him on board. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Lovely to be here. So I told you that I, I was going to explain to you why I particularly hunted you down for this topic. I've had so many people write in for the Q&A or whatever, uh, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, how do I get my kids to just leave each other alone? They're just, you know, since the lockdown, they're picking on each other, they're fighting all the time, or, you know, oh, he's so mean, I can't let that go. A million variations on the different ways that siblings don't get along. And I always find myself sort of saying like, well, I only have a few minutes to answer. It's so much more complicated than that, you know, and I give a few high level little tippy advicey things. And I thought, you know what, it's a really important topic and it's so core to family systems theories and things. And I thought, let's, let's spend some time on this. Like, let's give people the meat, the, give them the, the, the goods. And, uh, and because of your unique background with uh, Virginia Satir, because she was also a, a more systems thinker, Adlerian psychology as being a system thinker. And because of so much of your contributions have been around working with families, I thought, let's go right to the top. Let's ask the big man here. Jimmy B, what's going on with kids today? <laughs> Okay, well, uh, one of the one of the things is that what's going on with kids today is <clears throat> that they've been sent home, and um, you know, so have we as adults. And uh, you know, one of the one of the great services that uh, school provides is it gives us adults a break from our children. We can put up with you know the sibling rivalry and the fighting and the bickering for an hour or so a day. But when it turns into 12 hours a day, and the pandemic has literally forced that into existence, then it gets a lot harder to deal with. Um, and also, we start to pay attention to it more. So I think right now um, has been a particularly difficult time for the entire world, but especially for parents of children who are very young or school age, it's been a difficult time. The first thing I would always tell parents is that if you're coming to see me because your children are fighting, clearly you made a mistake. And the mistake was that you had more than one. <laughs> um, you know, if even in my own family, you know, like I had children very late in life. Um, I was 45 when my first child was born. And um, my, my wife was 10 years younger, so she was 35. And, 
you know, Allison was a very easy kind of pleasant child when uh, she was born. She came out of the womb and she thanked her mother for birthing her. And then she quietly went to sleep and she was kind of fine the whole time. Uh, <laughs> Didn't somewhere, through the night. Oh, yeah. Somewhere Sorry. around, you know, like um, three years old. Um, she she and her mother teamed up and started lobbying for a second child, which I thought was just amazing because, like, I remember before we had children, my wife would say things like, I want five kids. And then somewhere around the third month of pregnancy, it was down to three kids. And then in the last month of pregnancy, it was going to be an only child. And somehow amnesia set in. And here, a mere three years later, the two of them are ready for a second child. And I looked at my wife and I said, look, I've been studying birth order all my life. The second child is never like the first child. Never. And so good luck with this. Oh, my wife says, that won't be true for us. Uh -huh. So wrong. So <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so my second child came out of the womb screaming and pretty much did that consistently until she was, oh, 22. <laughs> and well, she's now, nothing if not predictable. Yeah. And she's now 23. So I've had a year of kind of, you know, calm. How nice. And, yeah. Very nice. So, yeah. What we do know about children is that when you have when you have one of them, the gift you give them is yourself. So children relate and develop and grow much more as a single child, as an entity of their parents. But the minute that you have two, three, four kids, the gift you give them is each other. And they, their development is really related to how they interpret and see the other people in the family, the other positions in the family. And very naturally, they're going to fight some of that out. So the, the fighting is inevitable? Yeah. I mean, are there families in which children don't fight very much? Yes. But I don't know any families in which children don't fight from time to time. And so then as these kids are organizing themselves in the family, I think Adler, I, it's either Adler or Drikers, and I'm sorry if I'm uh, giving this citation to the wrong person, but something to the idea that children choose their own roles in the family, but then parents reinforce it. Yeah, I don't, I, that's correct. And I don't know who would have said that either, but um but that's that's certainly correct. So if you have an oldest child who figures at two years old or so that they're ahead of the other one and that they really are uh, doing OK, they may strive to be the really good kid in the family. And unfortunately, at um, you know, in early childhood and childhood, Things aren't nuanced for children. They're kind of always and never type people. And so if they look, if one child takes out the good position in life, 
then what's left? Oh, that other one, the misbehaving, the bad kid position. And yeah, if we don't pay attention as adults, we will reinforce that that relationship. I mean, you can see how easy it is, you know, if you've got two kids that you're going to ask to help with something and, you know, well, if I ask the good one, they're just, it's, they're just going to do it. They're just going to be the easy to go along. They're going to be responsible. So I'm going to ask them. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to deal with the pushback and the screaming and the blow up from the other one. So you see, you can see how easy it is to step into that. Yes. And we're also at a period in history in which every parent thinks they should be a child-centered parent. And so, uh, you know, like when I was growing, I'm a baby boomer. So I'm growing up in the 1950s. My mother and father never thought twice about looking at the bad kid, me, and telling them to do something. My father would look at you and say, take the garbage out. I, and I would say, I don't want to. And he would just look at me like I was about to die. <laughs> and there was no, well, if it's too much for you, sweetie, there was none of that stuff. It was take it out now. And so, you know, yes. we, we grew up differently. And, um, you know, when my when my children were, shortly after my children were born, my wife had their uh, schedule of events lined up for the next 20 years. Uh, <laughs> everything from violin lessons to gymnastics to dance to the whole works. When I was little, we were told to go outside and play and come back for dinner. We were also told there are chores you have to do. I can remember to this day. My father said, I was like five years old. He said, your job is to take the garbage out every week. And I look, remember looking at him and saying, how long do I have to do that? And he said, forever. <laughs> well, I was in a Catholic family and I thought forever is a long time. You know, I might have to come back after I'm dead to finish the job. Anyway, you were asking something more important about how we reinforce uh, our children's mistaken beliefs about themselves. And yeah, part of it is because it's easier to rely on the good kid. And part of it is because um, we don't want to, we don't want to get it. We have enough stress in our life. We don't want to get into a, a, a hassle with with our children. So we still are thinking in terms of I'm the parent, I'm the boss, they should be doing what I want them to do. But we're reacting, we're acting as if we don't want to hurt their feet, little feelings. Or we don't want to get into a battle with them. And so what what happens is our children look at that and they read it and they think, you know, we're 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 not quite up to this task of enforcing whatever we're going to enforce. Now, I'm not in favor of enforcement. I'm in favor of collective bargaining. And so one of the things that really was important in our family was family meetings. And those were things that happened like once a week. We would look at our children and we would say, okay, who uh, wants to start with appreciations? What kinds of things you know, do you appreciate about each other, about us, about 
pipe and we'll just go around the table and everybody gets to say something. And once we got done with that, we would say, okay, who has any complaints or problems that need to come up? And then we would listen to whatever that might be. And then we would ask questions like, anybody have any worries or puzzles or questions or concerns? And assuming we could get through all of that, um, we would move on to any new information people had. And we would end by saying, okay, who wants to do what to help out this week? And even when they were like three and four years old, uh, my kids surprised me by what they would say they wanted to do. Sometimes I would be thinking, you know, uh, okay, they'll say set the table. But my youngest, when she was little, said, I want to clean the toilet. And I said, fine. Have at um, it. <laughs> yeah, have at it. And, you know, I showed her how to use the, um, the little fluid stuff that goes in and how to use the brush to clean it all and everything. And that was the other thing. When, when the kids said they wanted to do something and they were willing to do it, we would not only let them, and, uh, but we would also say, okay, this only lasts for one week. At the end of the week, you can choose something else if you want. So you, you, uh, you didn't have them thinking forever, forever. Forever will kill you. So, yeah, no, <laughs> it's, 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 I don't, there's nothing even I want to do forever. <laughs> when my uh, five-year-old said she wanted to cook dinner, I was a little concerned about uh, what we were going to be eating. Um, uh, but. Sure, you want to cook dinner for a week, we'll, we'll do that. And she looked at me and said, well, I don't want to do it all week. I just want to do a couple of days. Okay. And it was a great time. We, uh, When I was little, my grandmother taught me how to make tuna surprise, which is essentially tuna fish mixed up with mushroom soup and baked in an oven. And it's awful. But nonetheless, I taught I taught Nora how to make it, and um, we had tuna surprise one dinner. The surprise is that we all lived. So. <laughs> well, I love how you I I like the structure of your family meetings because it's got structure, but it's it's got components that move you through some different topic areas. Um, but it's not constraining. It's not like with the gavel and moving along people and come to order. And it's, it feels very humane. Yeah, well, it's not my invention. It's the invention of Virginia Satir. And um, she used to call it temperature reading. And she actually thought families ought to do it once a day. But the problem, of course, with that is that she didn't understand that families have things to do. So uh, once a week is more than enough. And uh, yeah, uh, we you get to, you know, sometimes kids ask really interesting questions, you know, like um, there was this one family. This is not our family, but it's a family that I worked with years ago in which um, a little boy he was in the fifth grade. And he was a straight-A student, but all of a sudden, he wasn't turning homework in, and his grades were dropping like a brick, and he seemed to be depressed. And so I was asked um, to uh, talk to him, uh, the school 
uh, was letting me help out from time to time. And I was asked to talk to him. So I sat down and asked him how things were going. And he didn't want to talk very much. And I said, be okay if we ask your mom and dad to come in? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, you want to call him or me? And so I called him and they came over. And I said, anything new or different going on in the home? And the parents said, well, yeah. Um, father said, I guess we can talk about it now. He said, um, I have a new job in another town and uh, we'll be moving in a couple of weeks. And I said, did your son know that? And they said, no, um, we didn't want him to worry about it. And so what are they doing? They're packing at night. They're putting clothes, household stuff into boxes, getting them ready to go. While the kids, when the kid gets up in the morning, the house is looking emptier and emptier. And his first thought, of course, is they're going to leave him. Oh, no. But because he doesn't have an avenue in which he can ask a question like, what the hell's going on here? He doesn't get to. So I think it's really important that there's a time set aside for children to ask important questions. My oldest child, when she was about three years old, I had to start commuting. I had a job in one place and my wife had a job in another. And, you know, even at three, she needed to be able to say, where are you going? When are you coming back? All of that kind of stuff. And she needed to hear from me that I was not going to be gone forever and that I would get back. So, yeah, asking questions, getting the puzzles you have in your brain out, all that stuff is very humane. And Satir was right about all of that. Yeah, well, and to your point about how kids can misinterpret and they do have some magical thinking, you know, like, oh, I told a lie and then the neighbor's barbecue blew up. I must have made that happen. And then they walk around with all this, you know, guilt. And, you know, if, and if we don't know what's going on in their minds to be able to to give them the reassurance and help them get their needs met. And that, that those. So when we think about those weekly family meetings, maybe that's another context for people to realize the benefit of just being together in a family and how having those rich conversations, it doesn't always have to be so, you know, what, what are the problems that need solutions? Who's not share putting the caps on the markers. And, you know, sometimes it's like, no wonder kids don't always want to come to meetings. Like a lot of times it's about criticizing all the things that are going wrong when instead it's like, Oh, how many kids are applying for their parents' attention at the dinner table when really they would actually love to just learn how to engage positively if we could get the right conversation going and get their insights. Absolutely right. Yeah. So why is it then that some kids um, seem to decide that when that second baby came along, seeing as your eldest uh, was was uh, on the let's have a let's have a baby committee. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how come some we know the dethronement is is part, you know, your family structure is going to change when you have a new baby, no matter what. Just like if you add another ornament onto um, a um, a mobile, it's you know you have this sort of little moment of adjustment. But what is it that some kids decide to really find that a threat? That's just that siblings are somehow they they don't they just won't give them an inch. They just just won't make life easy for them. 
Yeah, um, the truthful answer is I don't know all the answer to that. Like I can tell you that because there is six years difference between my two girls, my oldest child is more like an only child. She is very highly related to kind of the influences that she got from her mother and father. But my second child, even though she is six years younger, is so clearly a second born. She's in competition with her older sister and has been for years and years and years. And part of it was that the the six-year difference, rather than separating them, actually made it more intense for my youngest child. She would look at Allie being able to do things at six years. Well, she didn't do it when she was first born. So let's say about the time she was two, Allie would have been about eight. She would look at the things Allie could do at eight years old, get to stay up a little bit later, get to wear different kinds of clothes, who was able to be mobile, go off to school. My youngest wanted to be all of those things and just erase the six years between them. And so she was very intensely in a battle with her older sister about um, what she got to do and what she didn't get to do. Um, So, you know, we could have said to her, and we did say to her, I'm sorry, Allie gets to stay up a little bit later than you because she's older. And Nora didn't say this out loud, but her basic response was, okay, you can make me go to bed earlier, but I will make your life miserable while you try to do that. And one of the ways she did that was she developed a tremendous skill at temper tantrums. And, you know, Nora doesn't like to throw herself on the ground at four years old. So she would walk two or three steps up our stairs and lean against the wall and then bang her head on the wall, which was also softer than banging her head on the floor while screaming. And, you know, I I have known since I was, you know, 30 years old that you ignore temper tantrums. You get up, you leave the room. And it was not my wife, but me who finally would every fourth temper tantrum cave in and say something. And I simply wound up reinforcing her doing that. And she did it quite a ways into childhood. I remember when she was in the fifth grade, they, who knew you graduated from the fifth grade? Anyway, she graduated from the fifth grade and they had an award ceremony. And, you know, we're sitting in the stands and they say they have this award for the outstanding citizen of the year, the student who has demonstrated responsibility and kindness and engagement, done well in school, all of that stuff. And uh, I'm not even much paying attention to it. And all of a sudden, my daughter's name is called and she goes up, Miss Temper Tantrum goes up and gets outstanding citizen of the year. And I remember she came back and I said, look, if I get you a plaque every year, could we bring some of this home? (laughs) Uh, You know, kids do what gets reinforced and what works. I think the one thing that we did really well with our kids 
was, and we cut the bickering and the fighting way down. When they were very little, like, you know, preschool, if they would get into something, we would very gently get down next to them and we would say, we can settle this by talking. We don't have to fight or hit or bite. We would just be really calm about that. And that just kind of got to be something that we would say periodically for quite a while. Once they started preschool, so like five years old, we essentially took the position that they were going to be sisters the rest of their life, and they might as well figure out how to get along because we weren't going to be there to referee it forever. And I remember Nora coming to me one time. She was probably about five or six, and she said, Allie hit me. And I said to her, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And she said, do something. And I said, what would you like me to do? I don't think she said go hit her, but she wanted me to do something. And I said, let me ask you a question, Nora. I said, how close, how, uh, how long have you known your sister? Long time. Okay. Now, has she always been dangerous? Yes. Good. So how close do you have to get to her in order to get hit? What do you mean? Well, like, can, what, can she hit you if you're in a different room? No. How close do you have to get? Pretty close, okay? So if you come and tell me again that you got hit, I'll know you made a mistake and you got inside your sister's danger zone. I recommend you stay outside of it. And my daughter looked at me and said, you're not helping and stomped off. <laughs> and I think there's something about, it's really hard when you're at home with your children and the noise level gets to a certain level, it's really hard to remember they're the only ones who ever start it, but they're also the only ones who ever stop it. It doesn't stop because we step in. And so, you know, we just have to learn, and it's really, really hard to stay out of it. Take the early years, take the preschool years, and reinforce the knowledge, the, the idea that we don't hit and we talk calmly. And we do that by talking calmly to them. But once, you know, school starts, they're old enough, they have to figure it out themselves. I, I, I so agree with you on the, the yeah, there's the, the take time for training. How long is a turn? How do you know when it turns over? How do you use your words? And, you know, there's a lot to be to be taught in those those skills in the early years. I agree. By the time your kids are in elementary school, if they're still fighting that they're they're choosing conflict over cooperation. It is not a skills deficit. It's not an emotional regulation issue that that, that is a choice to escalate. Yes. So yeah. what are the, what would be the benefit of escalating? Well, I'm fairly certain that in our family, my wife can hear an irritated discussion five rooms away. I, on the other hand, can tolerate noise right in front of me. And so as parents, we had different levels of when we felt it was time to intervene. And what I've learned is that, you know, children respond differently to different parents, to each parent. And, um, and that's assuming that there is more than one parent. But 
Um, yeah. So I think if you have a couple of kids where it's escalating, it's escalating because it needs to to get the other parent involved. It's got to go over that threshold, the other parent's threshold. Yes. So that you'll step in and do your do your number, do your do their bidding. I mean, I think that's I think, you know, when I try to explain to parents that that they them, I have to get them to understand, but then they also have to convince their kids. You know, you are the caretaker of, of your relationship with your sibling, not mine. They really like kids really do to, to, you know, to your daughter's point of dad, do something. Yes. Her step in and make some, some, you know, do something to her. You know, this idea of like, it's not my job to make you guys get along. It's not my job to referee your fights. They're like, you're the parent. Yes, it is your job. First, I got to convince the parents it's not. And then I got to get them to convince their kids that they're not stepping in anymore, that it isn't their role and responsibility. And that's, that's a hard framework to change if you've been doing it for years and years. Yeah. And if you have been doing it for years and years, I can guarantee you the moment you stop, it'll get worse before it gets better. Say more about that. It's kind of like what the early behaviorists figured out. If every time you can get the chicken to peck the button and it gets a piece of food, it will peck the button calmly and get the piece of food. And when it's ready, it will peck again, get another piece of food. All you have to do is stop sending food down the chute. And all of a sudden, that chicken will take its beak and it will bang the heck out of that button. It will just go nuts on that button trying to get that food to come back. But if you think about it, when children are doing many different things, and but fighting is primarily to get the parents' attention. It's primarily to get parents to stop doing whatever they're doing and come get involved. So if you've been getting involved, you every time they get into a fight for a long time, the minute you just tell them, you know, you guys are on your own, good luck. They're going to increase the fighting. They have to test you out. They have to see, is, is, does mom or dad, do they, do they mean what they say or not? And they're going to escalate things to a threshold that you think you can't handle. And that's why for years, you know, what we essentially tell parents is if you're going to decide to get out of this stuff, you have to go somewhere they can't get to you. You know, if they're old enough, go, go take a ride around the block in your car. If they're not old enough to leave to themselves, uh, as a woman suggested to Rudolf Dreikers back in 1952, you can go lock yourself in the bathroom. And she chose the bathroom because at that time it was the only door in the house that locked. These days, almost every door in the house locks. You can go in your bedroom. You can lay on the bed. You can put your headphones on. You can watch, you know, days of our lives if you want. Uh, but I, yeah, you if you decide to get out of it, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the other thing is they're going to bring the fighting to you before you went to wherever the fight was. Now, because you're not coming, they're going to bring the fight to you. And, you know, this stuff ain't easy. Parenting ain't for wimps. And so if you are going to try to change something that's been going on quite a while, get ready for uh, some hard times. So when do you not decide to start a new way of training? When you're on vacation, don't, don't start then. 
have vacation, <laughs> do it in everyday life. Also, my recommendation is if you're going to change something, also don't do it during summertime because they're home all the time. Do it at, during the school year when you can send them to school at least. Quick announcement, I have a new webinar coming out. It's Power Struggles. It's happening February 23rd. There is a link in the show notes for registration. If you can't join us in person, you can always just purchase a ticket and watch it in your own time afterwards. And uh, it's going to offer you up a four-step process to move from that conflict to cooperation with a child of any age. Come join us. Well, you know, Jim, I had uh, I had heard about the um, oh, you know, it, it, just to ignore them if they're fighting, and I had been trying my best, and it didn't seem to be working. My kids were I, I remember they were little because I was still working up at the the Adlerian Nursery School, so my kids would have been in like they would have been like three and four, and um, but the one time they're fighting in the car, and I said, you know, well, I, it's unsafe for me to drive. When you guys stop fighting, then I'll know that you're ready to go home. And they kept fighting and they kept fighting. And then someone came, saw me sitting in the in my car in the parking lot of, of the nursery school. And they came to the window and they started talking to me. And now, thankfully, they were another Adlerian parent. So they didn't pay any attention to my kid fighting in the back street. I wasn't paying any attention to my kid. But now, because I was talking to this other parent, that's when my kids realized that I was not listening to what they were fighting about or that I, that I, my attention was so clearly not on them. And I just, I couldn't seem to fake it when it was just me in the car. So I found that if I tell people get out of the car or get out of earshot, like they, they're the ones that need to know that you are not taking this in because I'm sure they still thought, yeah, mom's still hearing who's winning this fight or who's being mean to who. So I found that like they, you might have to go farther than you think. And I think if the kids follow you, that's proof. That's, isn't that proof of our, of our, point that the fight requires an audience for it to have its utility well, I mean, why would you if you really just wanted to sucker kick your brother why would you why would you have to drag him all the way across the house to where mom was to do it well why not just sucker punch him right there in the living room where you were why would you put in the extra effort right yeah absolutely <laughs> but i i yeah. have i have had to say you know parents get very worried about how violent things can can get and you know i i i don't know in my practice i've never had um anything cross the line where it was you know sibling bullying or physical abuse i know that does happen but but you know these threats of like going to the knife drawer and and things like this you know largely are just posturing i siblings actually I always say yeah, i'm pretty sure that your kids love each other under all of that they're just letting each other know they're mad i i haven't had a if anyone's ever gotten hurt in one of these altercations usually the siblings feel horrible about it yeah i um i have never had once parents get out of fight, the kids fights i've never had two children that hurt themselves or hurt each other the closest that um we ever came to it was um, a child pushed his brother and his brother fell and hit his head on the side of the coffee table. It had a little gash in his head and he had um, had some blood showing. It wasn't gushing or anything, just some blood. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the brother decided to help his brother with the who was bleeding. And so he ran to the bathroom. He knew where to get some gauze. And he had his kid, his brother, head wrapped almost completely in gauze, enough that had the parents not come out because it had gotten really quiet and seen it, the kid might have suffocated. 
but <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't because the it wasn't because the uh, uh, the kid was trying to hurt his brother. It was actually trying to help him. I think that um, most of the time, children, even when they're very very young, don't have a high need to hurt the other child. This is just this is just clearing clearing the air or getting parents involved or whatever needs to happen around that stuff. I do think there are kids who are dangerous in life. And so if I have families coming in and asking about it, I will ask things like, has either of your children ever hurt an animal? Have they ever taken a weapon and tried to do something with it? Have they used fire in any way? And if the answer to all of those things is no, then I'm pretty sure that the, the getting out of the fights is going to be safe. If, on the other hand, the answer is yes, we're probably dealing with something much more serious, something in the realm of a possible, what the DSM-5 would call conduct disorder. Um, and then my next line of questioning is, to ask the parents, do they know what empathy is? And do they sense that maybe their child lacks the ability to put him or herself in the, another person's shoes? And if it turns out that the answers to those are true, then I'm probably going to, um, not probably, I am going to ask the parents uh, to consider some real serious therapy uh, as a family. It can be with me or it can be with someone else, but probably, and then probably it's not a good idea to just let them fight. And in such a case, what you would do if fighting broke out is without talking, you would go in and pick up the child who is not dangerous and you would remove that child. It's the same thing you would do if you have like, in my case, I had a I had a six year old when my second was born. She was seven years old when she was only one. Had she been, and she wasn't, but had she been a child who was, you know, do, hurting a baby, you would simply go in, pick the baby up, and remove it. So you protect the victim without reinforcing in the aggressor that you will respond to them in a positive way. So you're meeting the needs for the meet the needs of the situation for safety. Yes. Without giving reinforcement for negative behavior or non non pro-social behavior. Yeah. The very worst time to talk to children ever is when you're angry. And I, you know, I say that and I was guilty of it myself, uh, especially with my temper tantrum throwing daughter. I was guilty of it myself for many years. Uh, the the good news uh, is that as parents, as parents, we make mistakes all the time. You know, I, a friend of mine, Rachel Schifron, says to be a parent is to make a mistake once a day. And I found that if I can keep it down to once a day, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, that's going to, we're going to do things that even even if we've studied it and know that we shouldn't, we're going to do things badly from time to time. The good news is that the very things that help you raise a ch child well 
are also the things you do to reclaim your relationship with the child. So if, if helping your child to adjust to life is best done by emotional attunement, by talking softly and calmly, even during distressful times with children, by being present to meet their needs when, when we can, but also to help them meet their own needs when they can. If all of those are part of it, of raising children well, those are also the same things that help you reclaim your relationship with your child if it's gone bad. And so, yeah, I, I, think, I think that it's not a lack of knowing what to do. It is that our children are interactive beings with us, and they're just better at pushing our buttons than we want them to be. And we all got our buttons no matter what. No matter what. Nobody, yeah, nobody, nobody gets off the hook from having buttons. We're all, we're all humble humans, right? We are. <laughs> then they got our number. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, to your point about one mistake a day, I think that would be, uh, I, I agree, that would be a lofty standard for me to only make one mistake a day. But it does speak well to why we also need them to go off to school so that the teachers can go make a mistake a day with our kids, too. And, and you know, and, and, and the kids do fine. They I mean, do. I, mean, I would, oh my God, who would want to curse a child with having a perfect parent? Can you imagine that child interacting with any other authority figure or being a parent themselves? They wouldn't, they wouldn't know how life worked. Yeah. I mean, unless we were going to turn ourselves into robots or something, how, how, you know, how are you going to learn the human condition of people have good days and bad days and blurts and what, all those other things learn from their mistakes want to try again yeah yeah oh my god um have you had families where the siblings have where it was it's just been a decision that for whatever reason um you know they've uh, disowned one another and it's just a relationship they both mutually decided to not pursue i mean at what point do you say you guys don't want to like each other um you know in in a lots of adults disown their siblings and don't talk to them anymore or when siblings decide not to talk to each other, usually they're much farther along in life. So, you know, like at least late adolescence or early adulthood before something like that might happen. I am not a, I'm not hugely in favor of the notion of parents deciding not to talk with their kids. Although I do understand that some children decide to emancipate emotionally or literally from their parents. But you see, the problem is that this is what Murray Bowen would have called emotional uh, cutoff. This that I am cutting you off emotionally. The problem with that, it's like saying to someone, don't think about white elephants. (laughs) When you try to emotionally cut yourself off, or just, I am not talking to you ever again. I have to constantly pay attention to what's going on with you, where you are. It doesn't resolve anything. It just, you know. Now, are there people who say, you know, you know, I'm an older adult and my sister and I don't get along very well and we don't talk to each other very much anymore? Sure, that happens. And 
sometimes it's for the best. My sister Joellen and I were both adopted. Now, before anybody reads much into that, let me just say that when I was four years old, my mother told me that I was adopted, and she made it sound like there was this big Walmart with babies, and that they walked up and down the aisles, and they found me, and they chose me, and they took me home. And I used to feel sorry for people who were merely birthed, because they were stuck with whatever came out, you know, but I... Jimmy Bitter, I was chosen. Now, how my mother conveyed that to me, I don't know. And where I put all of that into my little pea-picking brain, I don't know either. But I always felt just fine being adopted. That, it turns out, was not true for my sister, who spent a good deal of her life trying to figure out who her quote, real parents were. That's especially true after my mother died when I was 14 and she was 12. Now, we were both adopted through Catholic charities, and nobody is ever going to find out who their real parents were through Catholic charities. That's just not going to happen. So anyway, I, uh, at least when we were both adopted, it might be different now. But in any case, um, my sister, after a while, created her own fantasy life about how she was born, how she came to be who she was. And it was different than my picture of our lives. And after a while, uh, it wasn't that we stopped talking to each other, but we just didn't have a lot in common. And so part of it was that we lived on in different parts of the United States, but part of it was just that we stopped putting much effort into seeing each other. I don't think any either of us suffered from that or that anything terrible came because it wasn't an emotional cutoff. It was just, we have different lives and we are moving on. But if two people are saying, we're in such a, a big battle with each other that we're not gonna talk to each other, we're not dealing, you know, I never wanna see this person again. Essentially, you're holding that person inside you in a sense of and in pain and that's not good for people and so if i run into folks who are doing that i'm probably going to try and help them to reconsider their position so that they're more at ease doesn't mean that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to start calling and visiting and flying across the country it's a different relationship with how they've made peace with what that relationship looks like or how it resides in them. Yes. I understood that right. Yes, that's exactly right. Can I give you one more scenario and then I'm you know, mindful of the time. I want to make sure we get, if there's anything you want to, to, to make sure that we cover too. But what about in this situation where you've got a, a, a sibling where one is really uh, doing seemingly so the successful child, whatever, the grades, the marks, the whatever. And so this second child or the other child could be older, could be younger, but, but this other comparator makes that child quite discouraged. So they don't try hard at school and they don't do anything. And you can sort of see that they're just really not allowing themselves 
the benefit of flourishing because they don't think they can keep up or outperform a really high performing, high successful sibling. How do we reach that child? Because it's not the it's not the fault of the child. You know, you know, you don't tell the A student, could you flunk a few courses so that your brother, you know, can get ahead a bit? Like, you know, <laughs> take yeah. from the team. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of the premise of all of that is that if you have some super successful child like that, you almost almost always have parents who are achievement oriented. And so when you would say, even if you could say, to the parents, you know, lower your standards. They couldn't do it because they're high standard people. So like, you know, in our family, my wife and I are both college professors. We're both heavily oriented towards education. I don't think my kids ever felt like they had an option about going to school. They didn't even feel like they had an option to not go to college. You know, we started, we started saving for their college the moment they were born. And so it was like, you know, the family value is our kids go to college. Well, fortunately, both of them did well enough in school that they wanted to uh, go to college and, and did. Let's say that one of my children just didn't do very well at, at school. OK, so the next part is, well, what are they good at? You know, at some point, I don't know a child that's not good at something. And what do they like to do in their spare time or in play? And how could we train? How could we reinforce that that's a useful kind of thing to do? So, for instance, there's a little boy in his family. He's the third and youngest child. He's diagnosed with ADHD. He is terrific at running around. And he has behaviors that could that drive teachers nuts, that drive mother and father nuts, and certainly older sibling nuts. So, you know, at some point, what they do to this kid to get him to behave and, quote, focus, is they take all of his games away from him. So when I was with him, I just simply asked him a simple question. I said, do you ever feel calm? And the child said, yes. And I said, when? He said, when he's playing video games. And I said, how long can you play a video game? Remember, he has attention deficit disorder, hyperactive. He can do it for hours. He can sit there focused, paying attention, doing stuff on a video game for hours. And that's the very thing they're taking away from him when they think he's misbehaving. So what happens with the older child who's successful? Oh, we go to his we go to his basketball games, we go to his school stuff, we go to we go to all the things that he does. Does anybody ever sit down with the hyperactive kid when he's calm on the video game and play the video game with him? Uh no. Parents don't even know how. So one of the things that I asked them to do for a week was learn to play video games. Let him teach you how to do it. Well, I have to, I'm telling this as if it was last week. It was several years ago. I recently ran into that kid. He's doing better in high school than he was when he was uh, back in the early years of middle school. He's still not going to get straight A's. That's never going to happen. But 
he's already invented his own video game and he's trying to imagine how to market it. And I just think that you, in every single kid, every kid who is under the shadow of someone else, the main goal for the parent is to help them find what they are good at and to give them the space to, um, to learn to make that into something. Boy, and in that particular case, to drop the parental judgment about gaming. I mean, how, I, you know, uh, so many people think that, that that tech has just ruined our family life and all you want to do is play that game. And here, this is the one kid, one part of life that this kid was competent at uh, yeah. and, and it couldn't be celebrated. How much we want to move kids into um into the vision of them that we have, and we just have to let that go. You know, we don't get to pick the kids that were bestowed. Well, they get to pick Jimmy from the from the Walmart, but us <laughs> those <That's> right. <laughs> those birth ones. You don't know. You don't know what what kids you're going to get. You got to raise the one you have, not the one that's up in your head, right? Anything else you think is important to the conversation to, to encourage parents? Uh, to, to let let siblings deal and let them have their own relationship and trust that they can figure out how to get along should they choose to? Yeah, my sense is that um, one of the fastest ways to help children de-escalate competition with each other is for the parents to de-escalate competition between themselves. And so one of the ways that parents can do that is they can create family time together in which everybody is cooperating, doing something fun. And it doesn't have to be uh, anything big and expensive. Like this last week, surprise of surprises, it snowed in Tennessee. And <laughs> but not just a little bit of snow either. We had, you know, like uh, six, seven, eight inches. And the really good kind of snow, the wet stuff. Oh, like the, sticky stuff? Sticky like yeah. Snowman, nice. Snowman, snowballs, snow everything, snow angels, the works. And the family that we know very well at the corner of our block are all out there in the snow playing together and doing things with each other. Maybe it's just the cooperation of making a snowman. Maybe it is getting mom and the one little boy on the side and dad and the other boy on the side and throwing snowballs around at each other without hurting each other, but laughing and having fun. The idea that we, I mean, most of us didn't have children with the idea that we would like some to have a couple of people around who irritate us all the time. We would like to have, we wanted to have fun with our kids. So yes, one of the single best things I think parents can do to reinforce that we're a family and we get along together and we do is go out and do fun things together. Go for a walk, if nothing else. Around here, we're really lucky. We're up in the Appalachian Mountains and we can go up um, some trails up into the mountains, see wonderful things. A um, few years ago, my youngest daughter and I were on a walk up on, uh, on uh, Boone Mountain and it was springtime. And there was all this foliage on the ground and you could lift it up and underneath it, there are these little white flowers and these little white flowers in the springtime up there are called lady slippers. And my 
daughter and I came back and we looked up what it was and where it came from. Well, it makes sense. You know, this is an area where the Scotch and the Irish landed in America. And that is a flower that came from Scotland. And it probably got put, some seeds got put in somebody's pant cup and it came over here and it landed somewhere and took root. It's not native necessarily to this part of the world, but you know, it's a, it's literally a little orchid and we had fun and we actually learned something. So yeah, there's lots of ways to do that. And I think the more opportunity parents take to just go have a good time with their kids, the better life gets. Amen to that. Well, I am so grateful for your time, for your contribution, for all the family education centers, the books, the the inviting me under your wing uh, to help me learn to be a better teacher and counselor. And, um, and I just cherish you as a friend. So thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. And I cherish you too. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.